You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 51. Today we're asking the question, how do experts manage fuzzy role boundaries? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tim Neal, who is a researcher at Deakin University here in Melbourne. Tim's done some really amazing ethnographic research on work as done by fire behaviour analysts. And other than COVID-19, wildfire has been the story of 2020 in both Australia and the US. So my thoughts go out to all those who have been personally affected. Tim, welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. Can you start by just giving our, our listeners a bit of a, your background and, and what you're doing at the moment in your role? Sure. So I am these days, uh, I, I've got a long job title. I'm a DECRA Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University, which is a social science and humanities research institute. And uh, what I do there is uh, I'm a human geographer and cultural anthropologist, and I've do a lot of research on things like how we understand natural hazards and how uh, natural hazards agencies or land management agencies collaborate with different parties, uh, particular traditional owners and uh, other Aboriginal peoples. Uh, so those are kind of the, the forms of or topics I'm interested in, but uh, I've come to it for a slightly winding road. Uh, I was born and raised in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and all my undergrad studies were in things like uh, literature and philosophy. I was convinced I was going to be a, a, a short story writer or a novelist or something with that, those persuasions. But uh, over time, I got more and more interested in more practical matters of, uh, and started to look at studying fields like anthropology and uh, understand how people uh, uh, understand their, their surrounds and their environments. And as a, a friend back then, put it to me when I was trying to understand what, what this amorphous blob of interest that I had as, as a postgraduate researcher uh, and a PhD student, what they were, he was like, well, what you're interested in is, is, is how particular voices and parties become authoritative or not, or how they lose their authority. And that's, um, that's broadly where, where I think he was, he was bang on actually. And so I did a PhD and what it, it was about was a, a a controversy around um, the governance of, of land and, and um, rivers uh, and waterways, particularly in far north Queensland. And I went up there and interviewed people about, uh, you know, what was going on and how their lands were being governed. And uh, while I was up there studying this stuff, and it was during the dry season, so far north Queensland, for those who have not been there, like rest of northern Australia is a uh, monsoonal, climate and so it has a nice long uh, reasonably or comparatively cool dry season when a lot of the landscape is on fire and as a New Zealander I wasn't very used to <laughs> wasn't very used to free running fire in the surrounds and people not dealing with it as any kind of uh, emergency you know people were very relaxed about the amount of uh, fire and smoke that was around them and I thought well that's pretty interesting maybe fire maybe you know people in different parts of the world have very different views of fire and this is of course extremely naive in hindsight but at the time it seemed remarkable and interesting 
And so a couple of years later, when I finished my PhD in about 2014, I was very lucky to be offered a, a postdoctoral fellowship uh, with the Bushfire Natural Hazards Cooperative Research Centre to look at how people manage fire risks. So I was able to kind of think about this, this thing, as I was saying before, about um, how different kinds of knowledge, how different kinds of voices become authoritative. I was able to kind of take that interest and apply it to fire management, which is really what I've done a lot of in the past uh, couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, great parallels and didn't realize until I started reading your work about the parallels between things we've talked about on the Safety Work podcast before, but also a topic I'm very interested in, particularly in relation to safety professionals within organizations. But yeah, exactly like you said, how they become authoritative and or, or, or otherwise within the organization, then how that plays into, into the way that they perform their role and I suppose essentially the effectiveness of um, the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. So I had to contact you and say, which paper are we uh, are we discussing? Because you've published quite a lot in the last three or four years, I suppose, as a as a researcher. And your background that you mentioned with um, literature and philosophy, I for our listeners just before we jumped on the podcast, I said, "Gee, you write really well for you know for academic papers and and the way you explain things that um, you know made it really easy to understand." So I think your papers, you make a lot of your stuff available through ResearchGate, so our listeners will be able to get hold of today's paper as well and and have a read. But this paper we're going to talk about, do you want to introduce the paper, the the title of it, and and kind of what the research question you were or what you, what you were trying to get at with this piece of research? Sure. So yeah, the paper we're going to talk about is a paper I wrote with. A colleague, Daniel May, at the uh, Australian National University, and the paper's called Fuzzy Boundaries, uh, Simulation and Expertise in Bushfire Management. And the title, Fuzzy Boundaries, comes from uh, an interview that, you know, is uh, part of the data that we're studying um, from a fire manager who was talking about the kinds of lines that he likes to draw on his maps of what, of, you know, predicting fires. And it became this kind of core theme. So the paper is published in a, a journal called Social Studies of Science, which um, is kind of one of the journals of a field called Science and Technology Studies. And Science and Technology Studies, uh, I'm a big booster for. Um, it's uh, a, a loose, I guess, conglomerate of people who are sociologists and anthropologists and geographers and historians who think about science and uh, its uh, in scientific research as something social, like that it's done by people and it's laden with values and what are those values and who are those people are kind of the key questions. And this paper, I guess, comes from, um, yeah, a, a block of research that uh, I've done, a lot of it with Daniel, about how fire management practitioners um, work with the uncertainties of, uh, of the near and distant future when it comes to managing fires. So these might be risk analysis, uh, risk analyses that they do of, you know, on a day when there's, you know, it's hot and windy outside and, you know, you know, it's going to be a hazardous day and they're doing predictions of fires that are happening or fires that are occurring in the, in the more distant future or alternatively doing kind of long-term or medium-term analyses of, you know, where is fire risks, um, you know, probably uh, in the landscape over a longer period of time. And this particular paper was really just a, a, a bit of very fun and interesting scoping work where I had uh, come across this community of, you know, fire managers, fire experts, they're called fire behavior analysts or FBANs. 
And if then um, people, yeah, who are on a hot and windy day are, are tasked with predicting what a fire is going to do, where is it going to go, what assets might it put at risk, you know, they're drawing the lines on the map and, and, and distributing that to other people. And so what I wanted to do was try and get a sense of um, this community, what are, what are some of the, the challenges that they face in doing their work? Um, what did they find rewarding about it? You know, why do they do it? <laughs> what kinds? What are the difficulties they face? And the research question to to answer your question more directly is really was really what do they collectively value as a as as a good FBAN? What uh, what to them makes a good you know fire behavior analyst, and what makes a good fire behavior prediction? Because something I, I, I understood fairly early on by interacting with uh, fire behavior analysts was just the level of um, intuition and uncertainty that went into their work of trying to predict something as, you know, um, chance-based and chaotic uh, as a, as a free-running um, landscape fire. So knowing that, knowing that there was going to be lots of um, uncertainty, then, okay, rather than approach it as, a technical exercise of where well, they're good because they've got good training or they're good because we can measure their um, their success in some kind of statistical way but actually no they they're, they're good or they you know because uh, their users think that they're good because the people they interact with think that they're good and so I wanted to talk to um, a, a wide selection in order to kind of get some sense of okay what are these you know do they have a collective set of uh, problems and do they have a collective set of values yeah i mean it's a fascinating fascinating parallel with research that i've done that we talked about i think it was episode 30 when we talked about the professional identity research that i did with safety professionals and asking them those types of questions about what does good safety look like and what does a good safety professional look like and how do they judge success in their role uh, what does it look like to them? And so you you had a you had a slightly similar process, but um you did a few more interviews. You did, I mean, that's so reading the paper, you did at least 20, 20 interviews, and that's a fairly large sample given I think you said that's about 20% of Australia's total F band population. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. I, I I managed to meet some members of the F band community who thought, oh, it would be interesting to have a chat with a social scientist. Um I think that's one of the the things, and I think a lot of expert communities, you know, they're, they're very, they do their work because they're passionate about it, but they don't necessarily have a lot of opportunities to to talk to other people about it. And so I, I was very fortunate that, yeah, the the FBAN community wanted to wanted to have a chat, and I ended up doing twenty. Uh, I kind of wish I'd done more, and I've since had an opportunity to do many more interviews. So can we, when we say, F, by the way, I don't know if we said that, we're talking about yeah. fire, fire behavior analysts and I'm just... I'm slipping into the lingo. Yeah, I'm so. feeling a bit like the lingo, but so you, you kind of did those interviews and and um, and coded all of all of them. I'm really just, I suppose, keen to get stuck into the findings because I think we can have make some real fun parallels between what, what you learned and what stood out for you and, you know, our listeners in terms of their role as safety professionals or just their role inside organizations. So do you want to just maybe start by highlighting from you, I suppose, what you saw as some of the really key findings, so I don't kind of direct this part of the conversation too much. <laughs> yeah, sure. 
So I guess for a little bit of background, you know, uh, as um, somebody coming from a, a from anthropology and geography and science and technology studies, necessarily I'm, I'm what you know we call in social science. I'm, I'm a social constructionist. Uh, I think that you know social roles, the roles that we play, are all kind of produced, and, and we help produce them. So. Uh, when I look at an expert community like fire behavior analysts or safety professionals of some kind, you know, their role is made by what they do and um, and that uh, role will always have boundaries or conflicts or tensions that people need to work through in order to do their work. You know, this is the academics have this too and, and people have spent lots of time talking to academics about all the kinds of tensions they have to manage. So the key findings from these 20 interviews was to kind of zero in on three tensions that fire behavior analysts have to manage in order to do their work. And they're tensions to which there's, you know, they're, they're tensions because there's no real solution. There's no fix to them, but they're things that everybody has to balance. And so uh, the first one, first one of these tensions is the tension between where they draw their expertise from. Is it from being in the field uh, you know, out on the fire line, or is it from being in the office? You know, in a in a whether that's in a incident control center or a state control center, or, or you know, wherever it is, you know, way far away from where the fire is happening, but where they can do their analysis. You know, run their simulations, look at uh, look at all the the data coming in. So this is one one tension that they have to manage. Yeah, let's do let's um <laughs> let's dive in and let's dive in and talk about those three because I sort of saw those three themes and so that first one experience was really fascinating and I saw you'd sort of identified three three sort of separate career pathways or, or or what that you had people who had firefight direct firefighting experience and then they came into these fire behavior analyst roles or they had some sort of I suppose just an interest in that activity through volunteering or or got in or they came from more of a technical science or GIS type based background. And and I like the way that then you went on, I suppose they're the three pathways, but I like the way that you said that, he, that that impacted like the language that people used and how they talked about things. And and I found that kind of, and even what, how they talked about what their tools were that they were drawing on in terms of, you know, making decisions and that. So yeah, I found that kind of really deeply interesting. Did that, was that really clear when you were speaking to them about just the way they talked about it? it was easy to kind of map to what their experience background was? It was it was pretty it was apparent to me. I haven't actually asked fire behavior analysts what their own reflections on it are. I've talked to fire behavior analysts about the paper, and that's been an interesting process. You know, it's been all very positive. Yeah, the in terms of the the language thing and people's background, I think is really interesting because it goes to this point of. A work the, of of the work the kind of wider transition that's happening within emergency management that emergency management in Australia as in many other parts of the world has historically been fairly volunteer based and you had a lot of people whose jobs had them uh, like foresters often working the land and then during the fire season still working the land but in another way to people who have much more specialised professional roles that actually take them away from the fire ground and mean that they're not coming necessarily from an ex a place of experience of forests or, you know, place or landscapes that are at risk, but actually like they're coming from places of experience of professional management, of um, technical expertise, uh, let's say of com yeah, computer simulations. And so that, that transition or that kind of, yeah, that transition that's happening within the wider sector is actually reflected in this specialized community as well. That some of the older 
uh, more experienced uh, long-term practitioners come from those backgrounds. Uh, you know, they've they've probably worked in the sector their you know their whole career. To people who are now entering the emergency management sector, not just fire, but the emergency management sector more generally, who for whom this may be their third career, or or they're just coming out of uh, university, but not with expertise in let's say fire ecology or forest ecology but yeah in um, complex systems modeling or logistical modeling and that's where they're drawing their experience from and this plays out in the actual work of like well do you have where when you're interacting with somebody what is your expertise based in oh you're a fire person you know you've 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 sweated you know you've sweated your time on the fire line oh you're you know you're a tech person you know the code, but you know you haven't uh, you haven't really um, you haven't really done your time. Yeah, and I think in in my research, I saw this, and I'm interested in seeing how whether whether you discussed with people how they saw themselves as opposed to maybe people with different experiences. Because in in the safety profession, we have this big tension between people who've worked in say frontline occupations on the tools, if you like, and then have come into safety and they've got sort of frontline work experience in. Um, managing their own safety and 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 working in and around sort of safety hazards and risks every day, personal experience with that. They might be pilots or paramedics or um, or something, and then they become a safety person. And then you've got this group of people who um, who it's a profession, um, like me for example, who went to university and did it, but has never sort of swung a hammer in anger. And then there's this tension between how b- both camps think the other the other the other group are not as effective or professional or authoritative as they are because they're kind of valuing their own their own experience and sort of devaluing experience that they don't have or the experience of others did you see anywhere in in those conversations where people would talk about those other roles in a in a negative kind of way interestingly not really i think i saw instead a lot of uh, actual respect for one another's expertise so an understanding that these expertise are different and one may be better or, you know, one may be more appropriate to the task than another, but nonetheless, an understanding that, that knowing, knowing, the, knowing the hazard from experience or knowing it from a modeling perspective are both valid. I guess I didn't see a lot of like, yeah, I wouldn't say I saw people, uh, pe- people putting down one another, but so much as saying, well, no, my expertise is different to their expertise, even though we have the same role. Okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, that's really good. So that's experience. So I think that's it's interesting that you sort of pulled out. I think I'm going to steal from your conclusion and say this um, tension between this embodied field experience versus this technical and or, or bureaucratic kind of knowledge. And I think that's a great tension for um, for I suspect a lot of professionals to think about, particularly um, safety professionals. And then you sec- so you, I'm assuming you're going to go straight into your second theme now. So yeah, thank you uh, for the segue. <laughs> the second tension that people manage in this role, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, that people are managing. You don't necessarily know where the fire started. You don't know uh, the weather necessarily. And so one of the main tensions that people have to manage is the tension between improvising and standardizing. And this expresses itself in a number of different ways. And uh, fire behavior analysts, much like meteorologists, you know, uh, there's this saying of talking about, you know, there's the art and science of prediction. There's the the science of it, the the tools, the spreadsheets, the models, the simulation runs. 
that's the that's the science and you can you know sitting behind each one of those is a whole bunch of papers and years and years of peer-reviewed research and technical know-how but then there's the actual improv you know that to actually do the job in practice requires you to improvise to make do to maybe you know if a fire is starting somewhere and you need to know what's at risk you're looking up google street view or you're calling people up or you know and each uh, and, and you're using all these different kinds of um, non-scientific tools in order to put together the best prediction that you can to meet whatever it is the kind of the operational need at that moment it might be a short-term risk assessment or you might be looking over a number know what's the risk over a number of days and the the theme of the interviews is that this tension between improvising and standardizing doesn't just doesn't just um, express itself in the moment of trying to produce a prediction about the future it also expresses itself in all these other parts of people's work that people's uh, that attempts to kind of formalize formalize the accreditation or attempts to formalize how people produce their uh, produce their predictions or how they communicate them that there's always this tension of, of self-expression of, of the art of it as against you know the bureaucratization or the you know the formalization of it and how people negotiate that is um, yeah is a, is a kind of constant tension there's there's no one way of doing it right there's um, uh, there's and, and any attempt to wrangle these people these professionals uh, into being all one type of person they will resist it even though they realize that that presents certain challenges to their to their work yeah that theme Jim I'm smiling because that theme is sort of one of the central themes that you know we we know in in safety that the the requirement for individual actors to express their initiative to manage complex systems versus kind of this desire by the bureaucracies that they sit within to proceduralize and standardize and 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 comply and conform and that that's a tension I think that exists um you know strongly in that and, and I like the way that you you talked about the science and the art as well and because if it was if it was just a science then the tools would have already taken over the role of people I suppose I suppose in it and you had some good models in in your paper of like what the model predicted the fire was going to do and then what the actual fire did do and sometimes I suppose those things are close and sometimes they're probably really way off and when you talk to fire behavior analysts they you know this is what something that I don't think really made it to the paper but has become clearer to me over time is that if a prediction you know doesn't eventuate that's not actually a bad result for a fire behavior analyst because they'll explain to you well it didn't happen because the advice led to uh, a different you know a different suppression strategy uh, we sent resources in at different places and so of course the final result doesn't reflect what I predicted because you know it led to or it helped inform uh, a response and that response was effective so great result you know what I predicted was way off <laughs> and this is and this is something they point out that a, a, a good prediction should be measured not on its accuracy but on whether or not it was useful for informing other people's responses and I think again that comes back to this thing of like it's not a purely technical exercise therefore it's something it's responsive and it's about responding to people's needs as uh, as people as as fire behavior analysts can kind of observe and so anything that's saying like oh well we should judge these people on whether or not their predictions are accurate is probably a, you know it's a false it's a false measure 
I like. I think that's, that's some sage-like advice within that about about the the success is the the informing other other people or other actors and and the actions that they take. And I think that would resonate with safety professionals. We we struggle a lot in in our profession to say how do you judge that your success of your role in an organisation should it be by the number of incidents that occur or or should it be some other sort of measure? And it's really hard to know what you've actually got control over impacting and and also to be clear in your own mind is what are, what are those things that you're trying to impact and i think impacting how the next actions happen from others is a is a good thing to do and it'll be hard to measure because as soon as you start looking at it you're changing it anyway yeah i i think about how lots of expert communities but particularly fire behavior analysts and their users you know incident controllers or other people involved in incident response i think of it uh, i've described it as a dance and you know, one is responding in relationship to the other. Uh, users are coming to fire behavior analysts saying, I want assuredness and I want, you know, security in what you're telling me. And fire behavior analysts are saying, well, I want boundedness. I want, you know, I want you to give me a direct, simple question. And how those two parties interact, how they dance together is different on different occasions. And there's no, as you're saying, there's no kind of, there's no control, there's no control scenario where we just say, well, you know, yeah, this is the alternative. There's only what happened. Yeah. 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 So um it's not yeah, it's it's not often helpful to talk about what what could have what could have happened or um it's really only useful to understand or 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 look at what did. So I mean you mentioned being comfortable with ambiguity as as something around that improvising thing because you know actually not expecting your world to be simple is a good way of actually starting to um deal with deal with a complex world. And and I, I suspect that the fire behavior analysts in your in your study they'd probably be pretty comfortable with things changing in a very kind of rapid and dynamic way. Yeah, interestingly, that brings me to the third theme from the paper, uh, which is the the tension between disclosing and withholding. Which, like with the other themes, there's no simple rule. There's no way of making sure that you've done the right job as a fire behavior analyst from talking to them. It turns out, you know, in different scenarios, you disclose and withhold depending on the situation. And so what I mean by this is that in a lot of cases, it may be useful to disclose how uncertain you are because um, it's useful to your users. It's it's useful to really let them in on, on, on every different scenario that you've gone through and all the different permutations and, and how uncertain, you know, is, is this a higher likelihood or a low likelihood and so on and so on and so on. But very often the users, uh, the people that you know, fire behavior analysts are interacting with in, a, in, a, in an incident management context have very short time. And so you actually need to often to be effective as a communicator, to effectively communicate what you think is going to happen. You actually have to withhold a lot from them because if you give them too much, and this is again, fire behavior analysts talk about this. If you give them too much, you can lead to decision paralysis or people not trusting you because they think, well, you know, I'm going to go to David and he's, he's not going to shoot. He's not going to give it to me straight. He's just going to waffle on and it's going to be no help. You know, they are really looking for quick, sharp guidance in a lot of cases. And so you actually have to withhold quite a lot from them. And, and, uh, I've since seen this, um, I've spent some time, not just with fire behavior analysts, but also with meteorologists. And you can see this in practice, you know, that they might have eight models for what's going to happen in the future. 
and they will show people only one of them because they say it's their job to figure out which one's the best message that, you know, scientifically they're all relevant, but what's the actual most relevant to this user for the decision that they're trying to make. And I think in that one, I, you know, what's the message there, then you're starting to get also organizational and political corruption in what's the message that we want to send, you know, like what's going to happen this fire season, for example, in, in Victoria, and how might that we're sort of we're both based in Australia and how might fuel levels be impacted by five kilometer restrictions from people leaving homes and not being able to get out to regional Victoria and clean up their properties. So so then what's the message that the government wants to send about what's going to happen this this fire season? So I think I read it, I read a lot in, in, in your paper around these social political boundaries and tensions around impacting on on judgments as well. Um, because that's obviously a big issue for fire behavior. I suppose in the heat of the fire, when they're working directly with emergency services, it might be slightly less of an issue. But um, with long t- longer term forecasting, I assume that there's quite a lot of political intrusions into some of that messaging. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speculate. But I think the thing I, I would draw attention to is, like with the other themes that I was talking about, the theme that expresses itself, you know, in a particular part of people's work, expresses itself in many other parts of their work, right? That it's not a contained problem that just in the moment of incident response, I have to decide how much to disclose and withhold. If I disclose a lot, then I've reduced the risk to myself that I didn't tell somebody something, but if I withhold a lot, I'm probably a more effective communicator. That expands to many different other parts of people's work. That, that it's, not just, it's not just a contained problem, it's actually one that proliferates. And I think in relationship to thinking about the relationship between incident between emergency management agencies and publics is a perfect example of this, right? That over the past decade, we've seen increasing uh, increasing messaging from emergency management agencies, uh, whether that's during fire season or, or or around floods. You know, we've got increased numbers of apps and you know engagement programs and. And um, we've got, you know, warnings that go directly to our phones. So we've got lots of disclosure. And the, I think it's a live debate as to whether there's been enough that's been disclosed or there should be more that's disclosed or actually are we disclosing too much and we're overwarning people, we're, we're giving them too much information. Again, it's, it's a tension around which I don't think there's a simple solution. It's just like, how are you actually going to negotiate this in this particular instance? Yeah, no, I think that that's good. If if you don't mind, there's a couple of other things that jumped out of the paper that I'm not sure which theme they sort of belong in, but um, they're things that we haven't quite mentioned yet. But um, somewhere in there, I had where obviously there's lots of information that that fire behaviour analysts can draw on in terms of um, whether it's between improvising and judgment to actually formulate their advice, and they they have to choose what they're going to trust and what they're going to ignore, and they're dealing with also uncertain sources of other information like weather information and on the ground information, so. Did you get much insight into how they made decisions about what information they they would they would trust and what information would be would be easily ignored? Yeah, again, it's it's really a, a kind of idiosyncratic thing, and I, I I guess I went in to these interviews expecting people to say, you know, I always trust the call from the local fire brigade or the person who's on the fire ground, or I always trust the intelligence that I'm getting from the system about the state of the fuels and how dry they are or how how much of them there are according to the maps. And I actually discovered, no, there's no real consistency 
you know, whether that's within a jurisdiction or across jurisdictions, that some people have their go-to, uh, some people have their go-to members of the, of the emergency management structure that they just trust because they've trusted them before and it's always worked out well. And some of them have had a bad experience now and then um, with a piece of fireground intelligence or, um, or something that's turned out to be, you know, not correct that they got from uh, a member of the public. And that just leads them to next time be more skeptical about that source of information. So again, it's, it's, uh, I expected to find kind of universal patterns and instead I found lots of idiosyncrasy that some people, you know, as I was saying before, uh, will look at Google Street View in order to understand, let's say, whether or not a field, you know, they're looking at a map and a field is clearly a field of wheat. Okay, I'm gonna check Google Street View to find out whether that wheat has been cropped and therefore, it's going to have one kind of fire behavior or it's not being cropped in which case it's going to have another kind of fire behavior and then i talk to other fans they go oh, i would never do that <laughs> yeah i think that's a practitioner you know you've got like you said you've got what has worked for you in the past and 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 you know your experience that you've had and you also mentioned in your paper a thing about um fire behavior analysts i suppose as as they get better and as the expertise and the discipline and the profession kind of grows then they also become you sort of said victims of your own success in a way that the better you do it, something, the more expectations there are on you to to do even better and the less tolerance there is of, of you making kind of maybe mistakes or with your advice. And I think Rene Amalberto wrote about this in safety 20 years ago in relation to like the aviation sector, that the more safe the in industry um, becomes, the even higher the expectations are on that industry to be even safer. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's something we're seeing this year in relationship to the past fire season that we had in Australia, the 2019-2020 bushfire season, also known as Black Summer, which is a part of Australian fire culture, is that after you have a big season, there's one to several inquiries, official inquiries, and we've got, I think, four or five here in southeastern Australia. And they haven't all reported back, but several of those that have have all been actually very positive or pretty positive about the response of emergency management agencies to the fires you know that they've said you know this response was quite good and and delivers on a bunch of the improvements made from previous fire seasons however we can do even more we can get you know fire sector could be even bigger it can respond even more quickly it can be even more technically advanced and i think uh, something I'm really interested in trying to understand in future research is, is whether, you know, what are the, I guess, what are the complications of that? Does that set up a catch 22 to some extent, as you were saying, of constant expectation of raised performance in relationship to something, you know, like bushfires, which are very chance based, extremely, you know, extremely stochastic, if that's, <laughs> if that's possible, you know, that are not like, several other hazards that are much more kind of regularly predictable. You know, we could have a terrible fire season and a great response, but it's still a terrible fire season. And, and it's not necessarily because there were failures. Oh, I think that's a great way to look at to look at work. That so, so this paper kind of fuzzy boundaries, I think you sort of say you're talking about, uh, I think there's a good message for sort of all practitioners, but in this case, fire behavior analysts dealing with fuzzy lines on maps, fuzzy kind of future scenarios, fuzzy roles and responsibilities, fuzzy internal tensions and trade-offs that they're making every day i think it's a good you know from the podcast perspective i think it's a good relationship with you know some of the roles that we talk about more more centrally in our in our 
podcast about safety professionals or supervisors or workers or or managers. This is just sort of showing in these technical expert type of roles, ones that we think you're going to have quite a quite a repeatable scientific basis and and process underneath them. They're just as just as fuzzy and just as complex and just as hard because they're you know they're in the same types of organisations that we work in and dealing with the same types of social relationship. So is there anything else you wanted to mention about the paper? And then I'm, I'm also keen to just get a bit of sense of what's next. Well, no, maybe was, I mean, it's a good, that's a good, uh, it's a good springboard to talk about what's next because what's next is, you know, subsequent to writing the paper, I, uh, I then had a series of battles with journals about publishing it. It eventually was published somewhere much more, much, much more highly regarded than when I initially sent it. So what was the pushback? We always have this discussion about qualitative research because because we you know, it's always been in safety. We've very similar research designs to you, and sometimes you hit these scientific journals that just don't want to publish qualitative work. Yeah, that was that was the experience. It wasn't uh, technical and qu- and quantitative enough. I wasn't quantitatively measuring whether or not these people were good at their job, and so I got into a, a, a series you know a series of discussions there, and eventually gave up and sent it somewhere else. And it was a great experience. So, cheers to studies. Uh, social studies of science. This paper was, as I was saying before, a bit of a kind of scope piece of scoping work for me to then do research that I've done and I'm, I'm in the midst of right now, which is a participant observation of fire behavior analysts, um, which I did over this recent fire season and I'm planning to do over the next fire season in a couple of different jurisdictions in Southeastern Australia. And I've been undertaking training to become a fire behavior analyst I'm actually, um, I'm halfway through the training, so I'll be, hopefully, uh, if I can, if I can, if I can ace the test, I'll be a trainee. And this is uh, all part of me uh, trying to uh, get a deeper understanding of this work and the challenges that people face in order to produce, hopefully, recommendations about um, about the future of this work. Because it's, it's clear from the past fire season that we just had and, and previous ones, but this kind of predictive insight is only growing in importance, not just within the sector in terms of how emergency managers manage incident response, but also how those emergency management agencies respond or relate to publics and people at risk. This past fire season, we saw for the first time agencies like uh, New South Wales Rural Fire Service and, and South Australian Country Fire Service releasing their predictive maps. And that was something that uh, in putting them on social media, uh, people may have seen them. They're these uh, red maps that kind of give you what's the prediction for the next 24 hours of where the fire is going to be. And this is the first time they've done this. And now it's becoming this you know, expectation that people have, uh, you know, just like the Bureau of Meteorology giving you the forecast that fire behavior, you know, that fire uh, agencies will give you the, tomorrow's forecast today. So that, that increased expectation and these new interactions with audiences, I really want to try and understand them uh, from a, you know, an even deeper perspective by, by doing this work and, um, and getting stuck in. And I think also to go to an earlier theme uh, of the paper, this, you know, the, the culture of emergency management is one in which you really do have to have some experience of things for people to be receptive to your message. And so I think to do research in this space, it's been necessary for me to kind of, I've done the, been on some fire grounds and now I'm doing this training. And I, I think that definitely has changed, not just my understanding, but people's understanding of, of what social scientists do and, and what we can kind of generate 
In terms of the, the paper that we've been talking about today and, and its application, it's been really interesting. I've, uh, it's it led to, you know, thinking about these tensions has um, led to uh, opportunities to actually advise different uh, fire agencies about how they might support, support their fire behavior analysts and talking to fire behavior analysts about strategies to, uh, strategies of how, how they might communicate with their users. So that's all kind of happening. It's, 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 it's turned out to have this quite applied element, which has been quite uh, fun and interesting. So yeah, that's broadly where things are heading. But uh, I think this role of, the role of predictions, you know, as, 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 as our climate changes, as the hazards that are around us change, you know, we've seen this in relationship, not just to fires, but also this year in relation to the pandemic, you know, the level of interest people have in, in the prediction, the model, the thing that's going to tell us about the near future. Yeah, it's to me a really interesting place to be thinking about, well, what are, we, what are our values and what do we find believable? And what are we finding authoritative? And what are we finding useful in order to make decisions about those uncertainties? Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing conclusion um, and really useful conclusion, I think, for for safety professionals and, and well, any organisational leader or, or anyone in, I suppose, I can't think of a role where the, the creation of foresight um, isn't going to be more useful. And in my PhD, when I looked at the role of the safety professionals, I kind of concluded that that is, that is the role to create foresight about the changing shape of risk in your organisation and facilitate action before people get hurt. It's that foresight and proactivity that is needed and, and expected, whether you're sort of trying to understand what uh, a fire might do or understand how a task is going to be performed in an organisation, how safe that task is going to be. But I suppose in your world, it's you're working in an area that's probably only going to get more more interesting with climate change and the <laughs> the financial and the human and the environmental cost of wildfire we've seen in the US just just now as well. What's been happening in California, and we're obviously um, in our part of the world about to head back into another another um, summer here. So I suppose you're positioning yourself into an area that's um, that's growth. But I really it's not not by not, <laughs> not by any purpose. I followed I followed my interest, and it happened to lead me here. Yeah, and I really respect, I think, when you told me that you were going to be, well, actually, the next step is to understand this even better by actually becoming one myself. And I assume you'll be you'll be taking a whole lot of, you know, ethnographic field notes and journaling and 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 reflecting on how you work. And yeah, fascinating. Maybe when you've you've done a bit more of that, we might have to have another conversation. Yeah, I would I would love that. I think just as a I guess a final note, it has, you know, my interactions with emergency managers over the past six years. Have really changed my perspective to some extent on on what social science, you know, and how, what we can do. I think for a long time I thought, oh, well, you can just kind of critique these things from the outside. And I think, you know, the the you know the critical insight comes from, if possible, interacting. And then the difficulty becomes, you know, trying to maintain some some sense of uh, <laughs> of critical distance. Uh, and it's been for me. It's been it's been really uh, rewarding and interesting. But it wouldn't have been possible without you know emergency management professionals going. Oh, this this is interesting. Let's let's give this a go. Yeah, I think that's great. And we we talked to our listeners a bit about doing um, sort of ethnographic research as part of their roles inside their organisations and and using these techniques, these observational techniques, and um, interviewing techniques, and and then analysis techniques with with information that they get from that to you know in, inform how they do their work and and how they make their decisions in their organisation for the changes that they're trying to 
influence. So thanks so much, Tim, for for the time, mate. It was um, really interesting. I'll make sure for our listeners that the paper's kind of linked in and available. And anything else you want to plug, Tim, because you this isn't your first time podcasting. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I uh, have my own podcast for those of you safety professionals and, and, and others, uh, you know, affiliates who are interested. I have a podcast called Conversations in Anthropology, which has been running the last uh, three years or so. And I co-produce it with some colleagues, um, uh, Cameo Deli, David Porter-Giles, Mike Lee Maher and Matt Barlow. And it's a lot like this in some ways. We sit down with people that we think do interesting research and we ask them how they got into it and uh, what they what they think is important about it and, and why they think it matters to the future. So uh, yeah, you can you can people can look that up. Conversations in anthropology and uh, and give it a go. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for joining us on the Safety of Work podcast. Not at all. It was my pleasure. So that's it for this week. I hope you found this episode thought provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 